Hello, I'm Edwina Johnson, Director of Byron Writers Festival. You're listening to a podcast of the session, The Anthropocene, Human Survival and the New Epic, featuring Joel Gerges, Clive Hamilton and David Ritter in conversation with Adam Shoemaker. Recorded live at the 2018 Byron Writers Festival. For more information about the festival, please visit byronwritersfestival.com. So colleagues, it's an absolute pleasure to be here. I hope the sound is good for those outside as well. Could you just give me a little indication? That's great. Thank you so much. It is the last session, but this is by no means one which isn't going to continue. It's a session which is both searing and important and very, very relevant to Australia and the world that we're in. Welcome to winter. (laughs) Welcome to winter. Isn't it incredibly relevant to think that this is a season that you can hardly recognize. And this session, The Anthropocene, Human Survival in the New Epoch, featuring Joel Gerges, Clive Hamilton, and David Ritter. Clive, furthest away, David in the middle, and Joel closest to me. My name is Adam Shoemaker, and I'm privileged to be chair. I say winter ironically, as there's no attribute to be seen. In fact, none at all. As we know, the seasons themselves, four, five, or six of them, as interpreted by the local Arqual, Bumberan people, are themselves upended around the world and different considerations of them. As you're aware, while we enjoy these temperatures, here a heat wave is afflicting Europe with, as you would have seen from the BBC this morning, amazing areas of southern Spain and Portugal with degrees up to 47 Celsius. And if you're following that, and how can one not, Sweden's highest landmass, the mountain that was the highest, is no longer the highest because it's melting. The actual mountain is reducing about a meter per year. And as Gunhild Ninis Rosquist, a geography professor at Stockholm University, said, you see the effects of climate change so clearly here. So, colleagues, how can there be any doubt? And how can there be any debate? Well, there is. And given the vice-like grip of the climate disaster we're wreaking upon ourselves, what place is there for real solutions, real hope, and real analysis of what the Anthropocene means? Now, first we're going to be hearing from Joel Gerges, and uh, Joel is an amazingly accomplished climate analyst, a scientist. She's worked now as a DECRA fellow, and if you don't know what the acronym means, just check out the ARC, Australian Research Council website, but it's it's, it's very sought after early research area. Her landmark book, Sunburnt Country, published by MUP, is an excoriatingly honest account of millennial and millennium change, climate change in the Southern Hemisphere, and in Australia in particular. Her deep history, her deep values shine through every page. Please welcome Joelle. Thank you. Clive, I'm going over over to Clive at the end, an incredibly widely published and cited author, as you know and public intellectual in Australia, his incisive co-authored analysis of consumerism, affluenza, made the term originally coined in 1954 new again. And most recently, his hard-hitting encyclopedic account of Chinese influence in the Southern Hemisphere, in particular, this nation has consumed the lives of parliamentarians for the last year. In this context of this panel, however, and that's what we're focusing on today, the latest book, The Uncompromising Defiant Earth, The Fate of Humans in the Anthropocene, intermingles philosophy, Deep Politics, Climate Science, and an Inescapable Text. Please welcome Clive. Thank you. And David, David Ritter, 
In his so-called day job, David is the CEO of Greenpeace Australia Pacific, an activist, a former indigenous rights lawyer, someone of whom we're very proud, an advocate, and a superlative campaigner. Some of you may have attended David's workshop last Wednesday at the Byron, Byron Community College, of which we spoke earlier, in, on activism, community, and advocacy. Most importantly, in this connection, his new book, and of course there are many contributors to it, but he was the primary author, is The Cold Truth, and it has its subtitle, The Fight to Stop Adani, Defeat the Big Polluters, and Reclaim Our Democracy. That pretty much says it all. Please welcome David. Thank you. So I'm going to go to Joelle first, if I may, and we're going to have a very interactive session today. Joelle, there's so many things where we could open, but you're a very active and incredibly engaged researcher, but just so everyone here is on the same page, how do you outline and understand the term the Anthropocene? Okay, so everybody here would understand that our climate varies from year to year, decade to decade, for centuries. So we have this natural climate variability that's been with us since the dawn of time. But since around 1750, where we've had a lot of uh, humans in the landscape in terms of uh, industrialising the planet, um, we've cleared a lot of the land surface, we've altered the way that the carbon uh, budget operates, so uh, a lot of trees will absorb carbon dioxide and it changes the chemistry of the atmosphere. So because of human activity, so our need to uh, fuel modern human civilization, um, we've actually created a lot of um, fossil fuel use, which is accumulated in our atmosphere and in our ocean. And what that has done is actually create a new geologic era, which has been termed the Anthropocene, which is effectively a, a geologic era of our own making. So along with the forces of nature, like things like plate tectonics and evolution and, and things like that, erosion, humans are now recognised as being a, an agent of change on the planet to such a degree that we've actually altered um, the, the, really the fundamental equilibrium of the planet. So if you alter it and you can recognise it, when did you pinpoint the major change in this era beginning? Can you actually name a, a tipping point where it's begun? Well, there have been a whole range of studies that have looked at uh, the emergence of the Anthropocene. It's actually an area that is, is actively being looked at at the moment. Yep. I was involved in a study which was published in Nature in 2016 which looked at uh, the emergence of um, the Anthropocene and it really, the human signal in uh, temperatures as early as the 1830s. Mm. So we can actually see the influence of, of human activity as early as the 1830s in parts of the Northern Hemisphere. The Southern Hemisphere is a little bit more lagged because we have um, a vast ocean, which, which is a bit of a buffer to, uh, to change. Uh, and, and so we, we recognise that we're actually seeing something really unusual happening, uh, really um, accelerating really around 1850 and 1950 in particular, which they call the Great Acceleration. Mm -hmm. Uh, and the work I've been involved in is looking at a range of different climate records, particularly for uh, the Southern Hemisphere, but in particular my book, Sunburn Country, looks at piecing together Australian climate variability. So what kind of records can we use to, to reconstruct our natural climate cycles? And some work I looked at um, used records uh, including the Bureau of Meteorology's you know, weather records as well as First Fleet records and Indigenous weather stories and also records from the natural world. So there are records you can get from ancient tree rings in places like Tasmania, coral records from the Great Barrier Reef, New Caledonia and all around the Pacific where we can use that information. And I was involved with a large international team that pulled together all of these natural records and we reconstructed 
uh, temperature variations year by year back in time a thousand years and we found that the warmest 30-year period that we experienced in the last thousand years is the most recent period. And we also looked at climate model simulations to get a sense of, well, is that just natural variability? Is it because of volcanoes? Is it because of ocean circulation? And it turns out that you cannot explain the temperature variations that we've experienced in our region since 1950 without the presence of human-caused climate change, so greenhouse gases in the, in the, in the atmosphere. And so that was a pretty definitive mm -hmm. study uh, mm -hmm. because it was a long time frame. And so for our region, we can see the climate change signal is emerging. Yeah. So people have been looking at this all over the world, but the research I've been involved in was really trying to pull together what we understand for Australia. Because I think here in Australia, we still have a lot of confusion about what is natural variability, what is climate change. And it, it's extraordinary to me that there's still, even though we have a, a current, we're currently in drought, 99% of New South Wales is, in, is currently drought declared, Yet there's no conversation going on about climate change. Mm -hmm. Although in the Sydney Morning Herald this morning I was interviewed uh, for a piece and, and it's actually made front page and I do talk about the, the connection between the fact that Australia's warmed by about a degree since the start of the 20th century and what that does is it makes droughts even hotter. So we've always had the ups and downs, no one's disputing that but we've actually got a warming signal which has a human component. There's a human, discernible human fingerprint now, which is part of this Anthropocene that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. And so I think that it's, it's a really good time to be talking about uh, what climate change actually looks like here in Australia. So while it's really interesting to hear about the Arctic and it's certainly of huge importance, yeah. I think we still have a conversation to have here as Australians. Mm -hmm. There's no doubt. Tell me, with research, and everyone has undertaken on this panel a deep research before writing, was there anything which absolutely shocked you, a discovery which completely shocked you and just took you unexpectedly in a different direction? Well, I think there's probably a couple of things I can say here. I was firstly surprised at how much information has not been used to try and reconstruct Australia's climatic history. Mm -hmm. So the Bureau of Meteorology's official records begin in 1900. But there's actually a lot of information that lies within archives. So there are early settler accounts and early government records and, and all sorts of um, really useful instrumental weather observations that can be used. They can be... Uh, quality controlled, and then they can be used to, to reconstruct our understanding of the climate system beyond just that 100-year period, which is really important. And so when I started working with historians, I'm a climate scientist myself, I I'm really work in the physical sciences, but it's really lovely to work with the humanities, people from the humanities, yeah. because I realised there's a whole you know, archive of material that we could actually tap for this scientific information, which was really amazing. So that's just from the, from the technical perspective, that mm -hmm. there's a lot of information that unfortunately the Bureau doesn't have the resources to, uh, to digitise this old material, so to key it in. Um, and so groups like myself, um, my group at the University of Melbourne has done a lot of that work mm -hmm. in conjunction with the Bureau uh, to, you know, uh, make sure we're doing best practice, all that kind of thing. Um, but it's extraordinary to think we have all of these really valuable records that could be used to reconstruct our um, natural climate cycles beyond just 100 years, which is really important in a country like Australia. Way beyond. And, and look, it, I think you'd not only created, but you discovered some records or rediscovered some records that people hadn't seen. This is a good story. This is in the book. 
So I actually ended up coming across Australia's first ever weather record. It was actually kept by William Dawes in 1788 through to 1791. And he took measurements of temperature and atmospheric pressure and, and winds and remarks four to six times every single day. And nobody had actually looked at this record until I came across it in 2008. I, got, I hired some um, research assistants to key it all in and check it all out, and I published it in 2008. And no one had looked at it. That was, mm -hmm. It really was extraordinary to think that not only was that scientifically really important because um, it's one of the few records that covers that particular uh, part, um, a particular period for the whole of the Southern Hemisphere, um, but also it was culturally significant because it turns out that I could reconstruct what the, the weather was doing when the first fleet arrived and then cross-check that with the early settler accounts. Mm. And so Sydney actually got really flooded out in the in first settlement. It was actually really cold and wet and people were shivering in their boots and it was a really a, a pretty miserable story. And it wasn't really until the summer of 1790 to 1791 where they experienced the first heat wave and they couldn't believe it. They couldn't believe how you could have a 10 degree drop in temperatures. And, uh, and, and they actually experienced um, a summer day during a heat wave where there were birds and bats, flying foxes falling out of the sky because of the heat stress. And they said there was more than 20,000 of them were seen within the space of one mile. And it's extraordinary to think about that. And we know that in the modern climate, over 42 degrees Celsius is when we start to see heat stress in, um, in, in, in flying foxes and things like that. So it was fascinating, actually, to go through the archive as a scientist mm. and, and really bring a contemporary climate scientist perspective to, to history and, and bring that to life. It's fantastic how in telling this story, you are becoming a new kind of historian as well as climate scientist. It's actually intersectionally and interdisciplinarily different from what's happened before. And in fact, that's something we notice in all of the panel's work, that it's not just a single discipline we're talking about here. It's all sorts of knowledges coming together. So for example, if I take David's work, I mean, there's many aspects of this, but early on in your book, for example, you talk about a very interesting point, that Australia has been very good to turn its back on certain substances that are mined. For example, asbestos. You know, if you look back at the the stamps, the popular culture of the early 1980s, there was a series of mining stamps put up by Australia Post, and the Whittenham mine was one of them. Right? Early, early, early days, 1981. So, how much has changed? Why is it that we can? You know, the word asbestos itself now is almost like a word which conjures up fear, and people turn their back on it. Why is coal not the same? Well, I think coal is um, becoming the same. Um, and actually, just, just before sort of going on to address some more comments to that, can I just register my gratitude, Joel, uh, to you and to the work that your profession performs um, and express outrage and condemnation at the way in which the work you do and your profession does is treated by our political leadership. It is outrageous. All right here. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that. You, you, are a, you are a guardian of truth and of our future, and thank you for it. Thank you. That's good. That's right, as the man true. said. That's true. Um, so I think something is happening with, with coal. Yeah. And, and with this, um, with the cultural meaning of coal, and it, and it is tied up very much with the story of the emergence of the Anthropocene. Mm. I mean, coal once meant something very, very different to what it means now. I mean, in, in the book I... 
quote Orwell um, and Orwell's investigations in the coal mining industry, the fate of the English working class in the pre-war, a uh, pre-second world war era. Uh, and it ha so happens that where Orwell was doing his investigations, ten years later there was a, a, a skinny Jewish refugee from Czechoslovakia who did his war service down the mines there that was my dad. <laughs> um, and so I grew up with an ethic of coal mining being noble service in the war against fascism. Right. Actually, coal mining has been a big part of what made the prosperity of Australia. Mm -hmm. You know, we need to actually embrace that as a national community and embrace that as a national community, mm. this thing that once was a part of creating prosperity has to now go the way of asbestos and that the time has come for that to be over. Mm -hmm. And I think we are seeing this, this shift... Uh, in in the cultural meaning of of coal that 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 reflects that that shift in in consciousness, mm -hmm. and, and look, it is possible, and we hope it will be quicker. But of course, you talk about it being right on the edge of decision making that's global. I mean, after all, we're talking about Indian Australian relations as well, not just the Galilee Basin, although that's crucial. But how do you see it at this very moment? Is that one or not? that particular issue? Well, no, it's, it's, it's not one. <laughs> um, I think it will be one to the extent that I think uh, the power and the determination of the Australian people and the rich uh, movement that has opposed Adani and the opening of the Galilee Basin will prevail, assuming that, that, that no stone is left unturned and that, that shoulders remain at the wheel. I think we will prevail on that one. But there's actually a beyond Adani phase of that. None of the mines in the Galilee Basin can be built. And, and we know, you know, that the, the, the scientific picture is so clear that we have to shift out of all fossil fuel use as fast as we possibly can. I mean, we should have been acting on this stuff decades ago. We are playing catch up. Mm. So we have to move as fast as we possibly can. Mm. Yeah, for sure. Look, and what's dramatic about your book, though, in many ways, is the insertion and the alliance with Indigenous knowledge that's in it. It prefaces it, it inter intersects it, and it respects it. And Adrian Baragava's, you know, preface, if you like, actually sets the whole stage for that relationship. Could you just talk a little about, bit about how important that relationship is to your own research? Sure. Well, look, I, I do want to, um, first of all, thank UWA Publishing because it was really a conversation with my, the wonderful director there, Terry Ann White, who yeah. we sort of talked about different ways in which the subject could be approached. And what, what we landed on is that, that I would be much more comfortable and it would be a much better book if it... If it approached it in a in a chorale way, if you like. So to open with the voice of um, the traditional owners of the Adani mine site, the Wangan and Jagalingu peoples, front and centre, and, and there really was just a sort of communication that said, look, I'm putting this book together. Do you want the shop window, you know, to talk about your struggle for land justice that's kind of transcended everything else? And you know, to, it, it honoured me that, that the answer was yes, that sounds like a good opportunity. Um, but then also to build into the book the perspective, um, uh, an Indo-Australian perspective, a young Indian academic, uh, Rachira Tilakdar, who has really demolished the, the, the argument mm. for coal from, you know, the sort of poverty furphy. But the other crucial um, thing that, that Terry ann said was, look, 
you know, with all respect, David, don't write an angry campaigner's book. <laughs> you know, be vulnerable in this. So, so, you know, there's the story in the book of picking up my three-year-old from her lovely community-run daycare where she comes out smelling of Vegemite and face paint and, um, you know, the carers hug her and they love her and it's a great place and, and she's a bit grumpy and she's struggling in my arms and, oh, Daddy, it's hot. And, OK, we'll look into the, into the car and I'm sorry, I'll wind the windows down. Oh, it's hot, Daddy. I'm sorry, I know it is hot. And I think to myself, yeah, yeah it is hot. And then it sinks in, it's May. It's May in its Sydney and it's a May that is five degrees above average. You know, you, you make the point, mm-hmm. Joel, about mm-hmm. yes, the Arctic and yes, Antarctica and yes, Kiribati, but these everyday, you know, it's the everyday Anthropocene. It is mm-hmm. the everyday Anthropocene. And, and just to be, to be vulnerable in the, in the book and just to be really honest about the terror of that moment, actually. Well, it is terrifying in lots of ways, but also when Adrian's voice is there, it reminds you that there are voices about seasons and about time which are different. Yes. They're not just ours. Yes. And I think, for example, we have a colleague at our university, Norm Sheehan, who spoke recently about indigenous knowledge and how one or two degrees could see crocodiles and Chironex jellyfish you know, off the coast of the Sunshine Coast or the Gold Coast in a reasonably short period of time. You know, it's those sort of stories of proximity yes. which make it more terrifying, I think. Yes. That's just my view. Yes. Do you agree with that? Oh, look, absolutely. And, I mean, Adrian is such a terrific, um, a terrific advocate, but there's also a certain, um, a certain sense in which we're playing catch-up here because, you know, I've heard more than one Indigenous leader, Indigenous advocate say, oh, so, you know, now you whitefellas are kind of finally working out that you can't necessarily trust governments to do the right thing and the fair thing over land use, you know, welcome to the party sort of thing. Um, and there is a sense in which that, that struggle for Indigenous land justice does transcend in time and transcend in scope um, the other struggles that are that are going on. Um, and and you do, I mean, you, you talk about, the, the Joel, the, the Indigenous weather stories. I mean, so my, my pre-Greenpeace background is as an Indigenous rights lawyer. And even even then, you know, in, a, in a, my sort of pre-Greenpeace life, you would hear the stories of the country changing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And some of that was about land use, so, so not quite so structural, quite so systemic, although in a sense, yes. And, and some of it we now know... It, it, was, it was climate change. Yeah, absolutely right. So, and taking a, that big, big picture, and I can't think of a bigger picture than your book, Clive. I mean, really, we're talking, you know, almost all of recorded time into the future. You know, how much bigger canvas can one pick? So, when you look at that, it, it seems to me that it's difficult to know where to begin, but one of the strongest points I think you make uh, in your, you know, I think it's a searing and sort of soaring book, is about anthropocentrism. And, you know, the difference between anthropocentrism as an is and anthropocentrism as an ought and how to distinguish the two. Could you just explain that for the audience, what you meant? Uh, Yeah, uh, this is in a way the kind of central argument of of the book, but we need to go back to understand what the Anthropocene is. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's a huge amount of misunderstanding about what it is that I try to sort out. In saying this, I'm not saying I have the answer, I'm saying when you go to talk to the world's leading scientists studying and writing about the Anthropocene, then you can get a proper scientific picture 
of what it's uh, all about. And I, I can't stress too strongly that uh, it's not, uh, you, you misunderstand, one misunderstands it if we reduce the Anthropocene to climate change. Mm. And we misunderstand it if we think that the Anthropocene is just another word for human impact on the landscape or uh, humans changing ecological processes. Mm -hmm. um, the origin of the term is like this. In the year 2000, there was a scientific uh, workshop, 20 or 30 earth system scientists in Mexico and uh, one of them uh, there present was uh, a very famous uh, 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 scientist named Paul Crutzen who won the Nobel Prize for his work on the atmospheric chemistry of the ozone layer. And the scientists there were talking about the Holocene, the present or just past mm -hmm. uh, geological epoch. They said the Holocene this and the Holocene that. And Crutzen intervened um, in great frustration. He said, we're not living in the Holocene anymore. We're living in the, in the Anthropocene. Uh -huh. And the term took off. Mm. Uh, he wrote a couple of short papers. Mm. And what he was describing was, if you think about it, um, if you, I'm sure you've all seen the geological time scale from 4.5 billion years ago when the Earth was formed from cosmic dust. Uh, if you look at the climate record in particular, or the temperature record or the CO2 record, you see these massive variations, very jagged history that goes through 4.5 billion years, driven entirely by the blind forces of nature. Yeah. What Crutzen and, and the other Earth system scientists are now saying is that we have... We have we have undergone this amazing transition whereby since around about the end of the Second World War, they now argue, um, there is this new force of nature, they refer to, uh, human beings, humankind, which is now changing the geological evolution of the planet. So from 4.5 billion years, something happens. Mm -hmm. And for the future, for at least for millions of years, there will be this new force of nature, a conscious living, willing, decision-making creature mm. which is influencing the geology of the planet as a whole. So the Anthropocene is not just about changes in the atmosphere. It's about changes in the, all the spheres that make up the Earth system. Uh, the hydrosphere, the cryosphere, the icy parts, the biosphere. And to anticipate, Adam, perhaps a question about what surprised you most, <laughs> the, li the lithosphere, okay, the, yep, the, lith the rock crust of the earth. Yeah. This was the thing that shocked me most when I came across a book yeah. by a geologist who said human impact, and particular climate change, is actually having an impact on the lithosphere. For example, mm -hmm. uh, ice masses, Greenland say, mass, huge ice mass, um, because ice is so heavy, it weighs down on the earth's crust and and it gets lower. So as the um, ice mass melts, the earth crust rebounds and this is giving rise to earthquakes, hmm. human-induced earthquakes and possibly, although the science is yet to be developed, volcanism as well. Yeah. And so it struck me, I'm going to answer your question now, Please. it struck me <laughs> that uh, against all of the environmental philosophy uh, which had influenced my thinking that human beings are just another creature on the earth and the great uh, pestilence is our view that we are the central agent on the earth and what mm. we must do is, is, is to abandon anthropocentrism yeah. and adopt a biocentric or an ecocentric understanding of ourselves. The truth is that we are 
we humankind are fundamental to the functioning of the Earth system as a whole. Mm. We can't pretend that's not the case. Mm -hmm. And there's no going back to the Holocene. It's too late to go back to the previous epoch. We're in the Anthropocene and beyond, mm. and we human beings have a responsibility for our impact on the Earth and what we now do way beyond what we previously imagined. So that level of responsibility is huge. Well, it's earth-shaking. Earth-shattering <laughs> uh, earth if it's volcanology as well at the moment. And, and there is a serious question of whether we are able to take on that responsibility. Yeah, yeah. Uh, look, as a greenie from way back, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a, kind, of, uh, a, a kind of moral uh, preference for withdrawing stepping lightly on the earth and so on and so forth. Mm. But, but we can't do that anymore in the sense that we can't just step back and hope that everything will revert to the natural. It won't. Mm. It's changing. It's going, to, it's going to change in radical ways. The ice masses are melting. They melt on the scales of tens or hundreds of thousands of years. Uh, the sea levels are rising. Acidification has occurred. We can't just turn that back. That operates on the scale of tens of thousands, a hundred millions of years. The Earth is changing as a result of human impact. So how we deal with that is not just a massive scientific, technological and above all a political question, but as I argue in Defiant Earth, and this is what the book was about, it's actually a philosophical challenge. Mm. And so the book is not an appeal for action. Mm. So people say, put up their hands and say, well, what should we do about the Anthropocene? I say, well, nothing. <laughs> uh, um, I don't want you to think, what can I do? Mm. Uh, I want you to stop and think, what does this mean? What does it mean for humankind to become so powerful that we can change the geological evolution of the Earth itself? Yep. And it already is in train, and that's a, a word chosen advisedly with the solar example here, but let's, let's take it this way. If you're quoting, it is a philosophy book. It's a deeply challenging intellectual book in that way, you know. And you even quote uh, on page 71 Susan Neiman's observation that provenance is a tool invented by the rich to lull those they, they oppress into silent endurance as an example of what is happening in a different sphere. So where does it go in philosophy terms then? Well, I mean, I try to lay out the problem and, um, you know... Here's the answer to that question. We don't know. And the reason we don't know, and I would argue we won't know for a long time, is because we have to wait for the situation to mature before we fully understand what it means. Mm. Go back to the European Enlightenment, or very similar, the arrival of modernity, and you think about the philosophers, the great philosophers of the Enlightenment, and their stories about... Um, and their narratives about humankind and what we are, which were, which were a, a profound challenge to, in Europe, the clerical understanding, uh, biblical understandings of the world. The, it took 100 years before those Enlightenment ideas, at least 100 years, to really sink in to society mm -hmm. and more particularly to think into our consciousness. In other words, the way we understand ourselves. I mean, today in societies like Australia, we think of ourselves as isolated egos existing inside our bodies. Mm. This is a radically new and Western understanding of what it is to be a human. Mm. And I'm suggesting that in the Anthropocene, we will eventually understand ourselves in a radically different way. Yeah. But I don't know what that is. Yeah, but it's out there with that question. Now, listen, David, you're an expert on campaigning 
you do, how does it feel to be told it's not about doing, but knowing? Um, well, I don't think Clive Hamilton, I don't want to verbal Clive here, but I don't think <laughs> He's Clive, right next to you, you can. I don't, I don't think Clive is counselling in action. No. No. Um, so, uh, I, I actually think it's enormously important that we do the deep inquiring yeah, about yeah. what it means. Mm-hmm. I think that's enormously important. Partly because we have to live in uh, a time where we are having these day-to-day experiences of a staggering uh, level of disruption in the patterns that we have spent 100,000 years evolving into. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the the idea that April might, sim- as we all experienced it up until, you know, wh- wherever you want to draw the line, um, 1990 or 85 or so, is gone for good in Sydney, mm-hmm. for example, is a profound thing. Now, I, I think if we are not doing the inquiry into what that actually means in terms of our role as, as people, as citizens, as parents, as friends, as as members of communities, institutions, vocations. I, I think I think we need to invite those questions in because otherwise we will simply be stuck uh, in inaction yeah. or we will be stuck thinking mm. of as, ourselves simply as atomised consumers or we will simply seek um, the diversions of endless cat videos or, or whatever it mm. might mm. be. Um, but nevertheless, I would I would advocate profoundly, as always, that we should act in accordance with with our best answer at the time. You know, we should be reducing carbon emissions as fast as we possibly can. We should be investing in regenerative agriculture as fast as we possibly can, because our best assessment of the human condition and the condition of the biosphere is that there is an awful lot that is still there. To be that our best can be done for, and that our best chance of a of a massive exercise in planetary home renovation, if you like, over the next hundred years, relies in getting our act together now. Yeah. So getting our act together, Joelle. Yeah. I mean, I think it's really important to be reflecting deeply on what it means to have entered a new era. But the science is so urgent that we can't just yep. navel gaze. I'm not saying you are, but. Really, the science has been out there for a long time and I think in the last two years, I mean, many of you would be aware that 50% of the Great Barrier Reef is now dead. I'll say that again, 50% of the Great Barrier Reef is dead. Now, that is something that we saw in our lifetime and on our watch. So I don't feel like we have too much time. I mean, these debates are really important and, and really they are fundamentally really interesting. However... We do run the risk of alienating the average person mm. from really being able to see the, with clarity what is exactly going on and how quickly we need to stop just being passive consumers and really being active citizens. And I think that's the thing that I hope we start moving towards really quickly, like quick smart, because we don't really have any time to waste. So this idea, I mean, there is, as you know, in public minds, plural, there's always a risk, isn't there, that if it seems so dire that it's unattainable, what happens then? Do people give up? You know, like, there's, is there that threat? Well, I mean, if I can respond to that, because um, it's an oldie but a goodie. Um, look, the danger of that argument, which yeah. is constantly put... It is, yeah. ..is that 
we will not face up to the true reality of the situation that we face. Mm -hmm. And when I wrote Requiem for a Species, which came out in 2010, Mm -hmm. it was really to say, uh, look, uh, stop pretending that we can fix all this and and revert to how it was. It's Mm -hmm. actually really, really, really bad. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so unless you confront that... Uh, and give up uh, this wishful thinking mm-hmm. and naive hopefulness that we can have a golden green future, uh, then you are arguing against the facts. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, after Copenhagen, uh, particularly in the environment movement, uh, and my book emerged at that time in February 2010, I think, um, yeah, the environment movement went through a profound emotional shift. Mm-hmm. And basically for two years became extremely depressed. And I think it had to become extremely depressed because being depressed, being despairing Mm -hmm. uh, was facing the truth. Mm -hmm. And so you had to go through that. And I don't think people do get depressed for the most part and despair and then give up and do nothing. I mean, we've all been depressed and (laughs) and despairing but we, and I'm, I imagine most people in the audience, but we haven't given up. No. We know that, you know, everyone knows we're screwed. The question is, are we totally screwed? Well, can I... Can and I, there's a gap. Can we both. And, can. and we can act to make sure that we are merely screwed. Yeah. Okay. I, I just need to say, just, I think, I, I totally see what you're saying, Clive, and I agree to a certain degree, but I think it's really important that, you know, it isn't a done deal yet. And I think that the degree of warming that we experience is still in our hands. There are certain things that are locked into the climate system that are going to play That's out. That's what I just said. Yeah. Hmm. But I think by letting people know that it's, it's you know, it's beyond us or it's it, we're all screwed, I, I don't really think that's... That's a helpful way of thinking about it. Well, I think it's facing up to the truth, the truth of you and your colleagues, that the Earth is going to experience uh, at least three degrees of warming. Um, We may be able to limit it uh, to that, but three degrees of warming in the long term represents a radically different Earth. It Mm -hmm. represents uh, a different kind of place for human beings and other creatures to live and there'll be radical adaptations many people will die and I just think we have to face that and um, you know kind of avoiding that because of the kind of pop psychology that Mm. we must give people hope Mm. I I think is a cop out. I understand where you're coming but David what's your view? Well I read um, I read Requiem for a... I mean, you know this story, Clive. I read Requiem for a Species um, on a very cold plane because it was a problem with its heating on the way back from London to Perth in 2010. And I was coming back from London to Perth to bury my father, who had just died in his 80s. It's it's as sad as I I think I've ever been um, dealing with... Clive's book and the, the grief of losing <laughs> losing a father I loved very dearly. Uh, to add insult to injury, the catering was down on the flight too. But, um, <laughs> but and I, I, I think like all of us grapple with this and um, in a piece that I wrote for um, Dumbo Feather actually, which I know is on sale here and that... that formed the basis of part of one of the chapters in the book. I actually approach it through um, through the historical memory of the lives of my parents. Uh, 
my father was an escapee from the Holocaust. He avoided the worst of the genocide, got out in 39. Both of my parents were in England, a country that was bombed to hell by fascists in the Second World War. My mother would say until her dying day that uh, no matter what the funny thing was, this was her expression, the funny thing was we always knew we'd win. Now, inherent in that confidence that we always knew we'd win was not that you could bring back the dead, was not that the cities would be as they were before they had been bombed to hell, but that at the other side of this unimaginably terrible tragedy and atrocity, it was possible to build something. Now, I think that is where we are in the context of global warming and mass biodiversity loss, that, e that we must act now. That will not bring back 50% of the Great Barrier Reef. It will not bring back the great dives in the mangroves. It will not bring back the kelp forests. It will not bring back the life of the woman who I describe in the book who dies alone in her flat in Western Sydney during a record heat stroke. Mm. These things cannot be brought back. But that does not mean that we should not exert every fibre of every political muscle we have to keep global warming to as little as possible. Mm. And as Naomi Klein likes to say, yes, the world is going to get hotter, but let's use every fibre of our political muscle to try and make it not get meaner as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So although I accept the diagnoses of my panellists, there is a political mission for us there. Of course there is. Of and course there let's is. get on with it. <laughs> okay. That's amazing. Yeah. <clears throat> So now you know why you came to this panel. It's to explore every aspect of this, your view. If it is going to be the next phase, I mean, uh, let's just use a few cliches that one hears. We're going to party like it's 1999, <laughs> dancing on you know what. I mean, all these things that people will say in society, is it worth the effort? It obviously is worth the effort. But how do you get those people who don't necessarily read all of your book to think about it. Well, that's right. I, I, I really appreciated your, um, yeah, just the way you articulated that, David. So thank you. I think, you know, we there is a lot of despair in this field, and, and that's, I guess, what you're getting at, Clive. And it is a fundamental way of thinking about our future, which is really despairing. And, and you know, there's a lot of darkness in that. But I do think that can, we need sorry, to. Sorry, can I interrupt, Joel? How do you, as a climate scientist who, who does this 10 hours a day, how do you deal with your despair, which is which is extremely well-founded and, you know, it's part of what you do. Well, sometimes I get really overwhelmed by it. I have to take, uh, you know, personal measures around the way that I work and taking appropriate leave and, and sometimes I get really overwhelmed by it and it is depressing, yeah. absolutely, and I do go through periods of that. But I think I also uh, am really lucky to be surrounded by colleagues who are also uh, optimistic in some ways. And I think that it's just a case of, I think there's a, a feeling in the scientific community of, you know, really trying to give it our very best shot. Yeah. And so just not being so completely paralysed by fear and despair, because that's not a place that's going to motivate anybody to do anything but about you, it. But what you've just shown is you and your colleagues aren't paralysed by it. 
uh, fear, nor is David, an environmental mm. activist, and nor am I as an author and activist. So, you know, facing up to the fear, mm. facing up to the despair mm. doesn't mean we're paralysed. So, you know, but people constantly say, you know, we, we mustn't go there, we mustn't talk about how bad it is because people will be paralysed. That's not how mm. humans work. But we understand. are probably not very representative of the general population. <laughs> right, just <laughs> <your> suggestion. <laughs> it's hard to say, are. isn't it? But look, why not think of it this way, though, too, that there's a big difference between mindless optimism and fervent hope with action behind it, you know? Mm. That's yeah, a yeah. very big difference. And I think I understand with you, mindless optimism, big enemy. The other, not. And Joel, you were going to say something else when you just now, weren't you? Yeah. Oh, no, I think that's... I'm just processing what I'm hearing. That's I mean, right. I think it helps when you have when you have a job to do. I mean, mm. you know, like many of us, I remember where I was on the day when Donald Trump was elected president of the US. And there was a certain sense in, in our office that day that, that something terrible had happened and that there was a certain ending. And all you could do was gather around like a family and say, well, there is nothing we can do about what has happened... But we have a job to do. We have campaign targets to hit. We have politics to shift. And we have to simply do what we can do within our control and rely on others also doing the same. I mean, we, we, none of us three sitting here, none of us, no one on any chair in the audience, not even Adam with the godlike power of chairing a session at a writer's <laughs> festival, can, can single-handedly alter... The, the fate of, of humanity or the direction of the Anthropocene, but each of us can focus on what is within our sphere of influence, on the institutions we can shift, on the power that we can exercise, and that is the best that we can do. And in terms, Clive, of your profound question around, you know, how do you, how do you deal with the overwhelming nature of, of you know, what, what is upon us... That's my answer. Well, look, you know, I mean, why do people in this audience come to sessions like this? Um, another pep talk? No, I actually think they come to be presented with some really challenging ideas to think more deeply uh, about what we face, uh, to broaden their understanding of the situation. I'm guessing that 90% of the people here are, are deeply concerned, understand climate change... Uh, are doing things in their own small or big ways. And so, you know, I think this is a great opportunity to talk about despair, mm. to talk about depression, to talk about the extraordinary meaning of the arrival of the Anthropocene. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think people here need another pep talk about, you know, how we must uh, go out and tackle climate change. I'm guessing that 90% of people here get that. Uh, and they've come uh, not to be fired up, but to have a deeper understanding of yeah. it. Well, we will hear from them in a second. We'll take some questions in about two minutes. Okay, so just one more. It's that, that I just want to point out what may seem obvious, but not. We're also here to be surprised. And one of the surprises is that universities, and you're all affiliated with them in one way or another, whether it's you know Charles Sturt or honorary at WA and so on, and certainly Melbourne and here at Southern Cross, we have a role too, and there's different things happening in the whole construction of knowledge and teaching and research and learning in this place and in this space. And if it doesn't change and doesn't reflect the research that people like Joel are doing, we're in trouble. I mean, I think the academy has also got to alter itself. You bet. That's a biggie. So that's something we can take back on Monday, but not today. So 
Clive, David, Joel will be signing books, but more importantly, meeting you. I want you to join me in thanking them for an incredible session. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. This session was recorded live as part of Byron Writers Festival 2018. You can find other recorded talks and discussions from the festival on our website, byronwritersfestival.com.